Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. It's October 28th, 1811, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. So it was on this day that an obscure 35-year-old rector's daughter sold her first ever novel. That woman was Jane Austen, and the lucky first customer was the Prince Regent, the future George IV. And can I just say, Rebecca, congratulations for beginning our first ever episode about Jane Austen without saying it is a truth university college. <laughs> Big achievement. Because <laughs> I know the temptation must have been there. <laughs> yeah, I had a few drafts. I thought, stop it, you're better than this. Yeah. <laughs> the reason we know about this is that the receipt itself was discovered by this chap called Nicholas Foratek, who was a doctoral student at the University of Pennsylvania. And he was looking through Windsor Castle's royal archive. So he stumbled upon this bill of sale that revealed that it was the future King George IV, who bought this early copy of Sense and Sensibility that was so early, actually, that it wasn't even out yet. It was three months before Sense and Sensibility was reviewed, and it finally sold through its print run in the summer of 1813. So this is two years prior to that, which does show an incredible amount of foresight on behalf of the Prince Regent if indeed he was choosing which books should be added to his library. Which he probably wasn't. Yeah, he had his own royal (laughs) librarian. He racked up a lot of debts, buying a huge variety of books. Not all of them as salubrious as Sense and Sensibility. Uh, If you look further down this very receipt, you'll see that the other titles he purchased for his library on the same day were Monk's Daughter, Capricious Mother and Sicilian Mysteries. I mean, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Haven't quite stood the same test of time. (laughs) He did have a bit of a habit of buying literally everything under the sun. He was a very controversial figure at the time, and a large part of that was his reputation as this indulgent, spendthrift fop who was wasting the country's treasure on just buying, you know, endless velvet cushions for himself. But it also tells you as well a little bit about what the novel reading scene was like at the time in terms of literacy rates, but also in terms of, you know, access to books, was that a run of 750 Mm. copies that took nearly two years to sell out was considered promising enough sales for the printed commission a second run of the book. And it's actually never been out of print since. So you didn't really have to sell that many copies to be considered a successful author at the time, especially if, you know, among those 750, you had customers like the Prince Regent. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, whether or not he ordered the book, he definitely did enjoy it. We have on the record, don't we, that his librarian, a guy called James Clark, invited Jane Austen to the palace to go and have a look at his books um, because he was such a fan. Although this invitation, which she readily accepted because she was keen to be uh, recognised by such highfalutin people did end up leading to some fairly orcs situations for Austin. (laughs) First off, she had to fend off the literary advances of Reverend Clark himself, who wrote her letters offering her suggestions on ideas for her next novels. And his big idea was a novel about the habits of life and character and enthusiasms of a clergyman. (laughs) She's kind of like, yeah, probably probably not going to do that one. Doesn't sound 
that interesting. Yeah, maybe you should do that one. (laughs) (laughs) And not just a clergyman, but a clergyman, and I quote from his letter, who should pass his time between the metropolis and the country, who should be something like Beattie's minstrel. (laughs) Uh, James Beattie was a poet, and then he went on to quote from James Beattie's poem about this minstrel clergyman. (laughs) I've got to say, though, that honestly, as Jane Austen was reading this, she wasn't thinking, what an amazing idea for my next novel, but she probably was drawing upon some of that pomposity and self-importance to inject into (laughs) some of her future characters, because it does read like something out of Austen, you know, the completely oblivious clergyman bloviating on about himself. (laughs) And so the way that she came to meet Reverend Clark was quite interesting in itself, that in October in 1815, a few months after she finished Emma, she was visiting her brother in London, And he was visited by his doctor, a chap called Dr. Bailey, who also happened to be doctor to his royal highness. And in passing, having uh, Jane Austen there, he said, oh, do you know who's a fan of your work? Uh, Well, the the Prince Regent is, and you should come down to Carlton House at some point. And meet his librarian and hear about all his ideas for fanfic. You'll love it. (laughs) Maybe she would have resisted the invitation had he followed through with that. Um, But anyway, that's what led her to uh, come to Carlton House. But the other part of the embarrassing exchange was that once she'd met Clark, he then said, do you know what you should do. You should also uh, dedicate one of your books, specifically the next one off the rank is going to be Emma, to the Prince Regent himself. And then that's where it gets quite embarrassing, isn't it? Right. Because I guess Austin wants the royal patronage for her book. Like, that's going to help sales, isn't it? And you don't turn down an offer from the king. Right. I mean, he wasn't technically the king then, but he was, you know, running the country because it looks rude and ungrateful. But everyone in Britain basically hated George the Fourth at this point. Including Austin. And it wasn't just his spending and his wild ways. It was also particularly around his careless mistreatment of his wife, Princess Caroline. They had what I think is probably one of history's most awful marriages. But a lot of it was conducted quite publicly. More than you might think, there was a lot of press coverage of just just, just, just embarrassing things, you know, where she wasn't allowed to be in the same room as him and their child. And it was just horrible. And it was all conducted in public. And a lot of people felt like if he hadn't been so callous and cavalier in his treatment towards her, it wouldn't have turned into this humiliating scandal for the British royal family. And so Jane Austen herself actually weighed in on this. And we're really lucky that we actually have the letter because after her death, her family destroyed most of her correspondence and they heavily censored what was left because she was known for being very forthright. And, you know, anyone who's read her novels know quite sharp-tongued sometimes. Mm. But she happened to write this to a friend who didn't destroy it. So they were talking about the fact that these rumours about Princess Caroline's infidelities had come out in the public. And Austen wrote, Poor woman, I shall support her as long as I can, because she is a woman and because I hate her husband. (laughs) So you don't really have to read between the lines on that one. (laughs) Yeah, so she actively detested the Prince Regent, although there isn't a letter that survives for the reasons that you said, in which she articulates this really embarrassing bind that she's in where she's written this novel she's really proud of and she doesn't want to have to put his dedication (laughs) on the front but it's evident from the first draft of the dedication that she gave which was simply emma dedicated by permission to hrh the prince regent and that was it (laughs) and her niece after her death uh, caroline austin wrote in a letter of her own my aunt made all proper acknowledgements at the moment, but had no intention of accepting the honour offered until she was advised by some of her friends that she must consider the permission as a command. Yeah. So she felt like she had to do this. And in the end, actually, the publisher insisted that she punch it up a bit. And what she settled on was this 
respectable, but you'd have to say pretty wooden tribute that goes... Deep breath. Yeah, right. That goes, to His Royal Highness, the Prince Regent, this work is, by His Royal Highness's permission, most respectfully dedicated by His Royal Highness's dutiful and obediently humble servant. (laughs) (laughs) Which is so dry, and you might have noticed it's basically the thing she wrote the first time, but just with extra words, like when you're writing (laughs) essay and trying to meet a word count. (laughs) But it's so obsequious because it's not in her tongue. Like, we know what she sounds like. You know, this is like when Jim Davidson stands up at the Royal Variety performance and turns to look at Prince Charles and and talks in this formal language suddenly. You're just like, no, that's not not how you talk. This is just really weird now. Yeah, and although the words are respectful, really for the time, this is the driest it could possibly have been (laughs) without being an outright insult, you know. I was thinking about it and I was like, it was almost like she'd been forced to set up an OnlyFans for the Prince Regent. (laughs) And he had asked for the dedication and she's like, okay, here it comes. (laughs) And actually he went on to spend lots more money on Austin. Um, He owned copies of most of her other works. He owned two copies of Pride and Prejudice, which I assume was probably his favourite. And there's later records showing him paying to have copies of various of the books rebound, gilded, etc. So not only did he enjoy them, but he obviously reread them enough that he needed to upgrade the covers at some point. So he was like, he continued to enjoy her work for the rest of his life. But yeah, it's interesting, like you say, that at a time when this profligate prince was attracting all this attention for his self-indulgence, she had this novel coming out that was all about, you know, moderation and controlling one's emotions, which obviously went against everything that was happening in the royal court. Well, I guess his way of of reading about moderation was to be like, yeah, I'll order five. (laughs) (laughs) This is a good book. I want lots. (laughs) Tomorrow. Building more roads to prevent congestion is like a fat man loosening his belt to prevent obesity. Love the show? Support the show. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors. Part of the ACAST Creator Network. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.